So we will go in alphabetical order. Uh, Joachim Betelik first, Sylvie Goulard second, and Romano Prodi, uh, each uh, for no more than 10 minutes introductory statement. Then probably I will ask each of you a question, and then we will open the floor for discussion. Joachim, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank, thank you, André. I try to be extremely short and a bit provocative, if you want. Uh, I don't want to bother you with the whole past of Maastricht, but the key was from the beginning, what we've got is a limping union from the beginning. And some of us, we had the hope, at least in 92, 93, that with the time at least, along with the introduction of the euro, we would be able to close this gap. But till today, we have still to live with this handicap that MU is not, still not yet disposing of a sustainable, as a long-term sustainable structure. We have not, let's say, done our job, if you want. I don't want to repeat the 90s, where we were preparing the Euro. We have been resolving part of the problems, but we were still living with one deep, it's not a misunderstanding, but with a deep difference between the French and the Germans. It was about, especially about, the economic governance à la Française that the Germans were fearing. And on the other hand, in the beginning at least, in the beginning of discussion about the independence of a central bank. Okay, but let's put aside the past. The reality is, we are still today living with this handicap in Europe. And there have been many proposals since then on certain areas, on others, what I call not yet. I give you the example. Uh, I'm still waiting for, let's say, the real proposals on what does it mean, fiscal cooperation, coordination, or harmonization in Europe. I'm still waiting for this chapter. And on the other hand, André has mentioned the report of the five presidents. But where's the echo on this report? Nowhere. And I think we have to overcome one handicap still existing till today. It's our conception about sovereignty. When you look at any debate, especially in my home country, but at the same time in France to some extent, who should have the last word on European economic, financial, fiscal, and monetary policy? Monetary policy, it's okay. We have the ECB, which is working, even working well. But on the other areas, who? Are they really ready to give up what they call their sovereign, their national sovereignty and hand it over towards, let's say, it's something common, towards the Commission, towards the European finance minister, towards the European treasury. I have doubts, real doubts. And when I look at my compatriots, the doubts are even stronger. It's easy. If the Germans want to create a last word in Brussels on budgetary, on financial team, they will need a referendum. Article 146 of the German Constitution. And this referendum, what I call, is not winnable. 
By the way, if we had to submit in, 19, in the 90s the introduction of the euro to a referendum in Germany, we would have lost it because of the specific nature of, it, of the Deutschmark. And therefore, one of my reflections today is how to overcome this deep difference of the Germans, but don't imagine that the French would be ready to give up their budgetary competence in favor of a common European body. There's a minority, like Sylvie perhaps, but the majority of the French, no, neither. But how to overcome this situation? Uh, how to create what I would call another cooperative political coexistence between the national scheme and the European level. How to reach this? And this is for me today the key question. There's another one it's about fiscal. Okay, let's put it aside for a moment. But I would like to launch this debate how to create what specialists call a certain a, a common exercise of a mutual understanding on common sovereignty. No more gave, give up, but how to execute a common sovereignty on something. You have nearly the same debate in another area, which has broken up in the last months uh, through terrorism. How to create another quality of cooperation within the area of internal security and external security. You have the same subject. But how to overcome? And don't forget, when you look back to Maastricht, in Maastricht we have entered into core areas of national sovereignty at the end. And since that time, we have difficulties to cope with the execution of this phenomenon with the member states. And I stop here. Hello. Yes. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for bringing this uh, both historical and very political point uh, about uh, about sovereignty and uh, putting that at the at the heart of the uh, of the discussion. Sylvie. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I would have never dreamed to be in a discotheque with uh, Romano Prodi. It's a little bit strange, but <laughs> um, now you asked us to talk about the story of the euro, but I don't know which story you're talking about. Because here in town, there is a story that, in my opinion, is wrong. And that is many in many heads. The, the story of, well, on the one hand, you have the single market. On the other hand, you have the eurozone. The single market was good. In the single market, everything was not fine, but at least we achieved some results. But the eurozone is really flawed, etc., etc. And to a certain extent, the countries that had a derogation were considered recently discriminated, and one of the results is the Brexit. I remember some discussions with Tommaso Padoas-Chiopa and some people who were there at the time where the euro was launched, and I was not, but they always insisted on the fact that the euro was the crowning element of the single market. And that what we wanted to achieve is to, um, to cancel the risks on exchange rates. We wanted to be together in the world to be seen as an entity, as we are uh, for the market or we try to be for the market, etc. 
And this changes a lot the perspective because it brings me back to the point of the sovereignty. Whatever the future is, we should try to be first simple, to be in the position to explain to the citizens on the markets, sulla piazza, as they say in Italy, what we are doing. We can sell, it's difficult, but we can sell something that is strong in the world and that helps us to exist. Because sovereignty is to a certain extent a myth. Look at what the decision on Apple. The Irish government pretends to be sovereign, but they are now in the hands of all the companies they have given the advantages on tax through rulings. The others pretend to be sovereign, but they are not because of countries like Ireland and some others that are always taking the money from. So what, what are we talking about when we are talking about sovereignty? Do we talk from our point of view? The Pope would say being autoreferenziale, looking at the world from our point of view, or do we look at the world as it is? And in the world as it is, and I know that I am in a minority, Joachim, but I really believe that the truth to tell to the people is that none of our country will really have a sovereignty if continue like this. We can make as if, we can pretend to be sovereign, but we will be less and less sovereign. Now, now I know that you, you are on this line, you are in the minority of the Germans. So, the question of the sovereignty should be, in my opinion, one of our major goal now. In the way we solve the, bre the, the Brexit, but also for ourselves. And we should look at what we have achieved and what we have not achieved, looking at our achievements with the glasses of some more humility and say, well, what are the fields where we do exist collectively in the eyes of someone who is sitting in Beijing or Washington or elsewhere? Where don't we exist? If we exist in front of the people of Washington and elsewhere, I'm sure we can sell it to our citizens. You can take the tax policies, you can take the protection of the data uh, in front of the Americans uh, as the Court of Justice did, etc. What the people don't like, and they are right, is the Europe that pretends to be European and is not. And the responsibility for our governments is to stop telling the citizens that they have everything in their hands. I will conclude with one word on Spinelli. I was personally shocked by the visit of the Holy Trinity to Ventotene. The intergovernmental trinity going to the grave of Spinelli, it was something. But at the end, I said, well, maybe, maybe Spinelli won because there was nothing in the communique. And if we have reached a point in which, no, I'm not saying this with pleasure, I'm saying this with seriousness and sadness. If you take the German chancellor, the French president, and the president of Italy, representing more of the half of the GDP of the Eurozone, more than 200 million people in Europe, they meet and they decide nothing, then I'm not convinced that only the European level has a problem, that only the Eurozone is in trouble. The trouble is when you begin to say something and you don't do it. You said, André, that the Euro was a 17-year-old child. All of you, if you have 17-year-old child, know it's a difficult time. They are tough with you. 
Whatever you tell, they don't believe you, so there is only one way to convince them, and you will see the result in some years, is to behave properly. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sylvie. Uh, President uh, Prodi. Uh, one, two, yes. Uh, look, uh, uh, Sylvie, I always dream it to be in, uh, let's say, a room like that with you, <laughs> uh, in a discotheque. Uh, but uh, being serious, mm, Joachim Bitterlich, he started uh, uh, reminding uh, Helmut Kohl, who was telling that he was in minority with the Euro. I do remember uh, long conversations with him, and uh, it was remarkable because he was repeating, the Germans don't want the Euro, but I want the Euro because my brother died during the war. He didn't tell anything, you know, about technicalities, you know, but there was a political vision. And when I was discussing, look, uh, and I did a un, uh, probably not appropriate interview to Le Monde telling that the Maastricht agreement was stupid, you know, and because it was arithmetic, and we needed politics, you know. And Helmut Kohl was answering me, Romano, Rome was not done in one day. This is a point that we cannot go back and step by step, we shall implement the policy necessary to give strength to the Euro. And this was completely undone. Nothing was done in this direction. This is the real, problem, you know, but it was so clear because now many, let's say, professor, technical experts, they say, look, you have built the euro without knowing the consequence. We knew everything, everything, but we understood that there was a common will to build peace and to build a new Europe, you know. And so now we are close to a decision. Uh, uh, damage are too big to go on in this direction. We need a political change. We need to do what was undone. Otherwise, the euro will not survive because this is a crisis that is going on longer than the uh, 1929 crisis. This is, uh, uh, you know, there is no, as uh, Sylvie told about Ventotene, there is not a common policy, even in the core of Europe, even among the three found big founding member states of Europe. You know, so now it's not, you know, we could, uh, of course, we could uh, ask the central bank to go on in helping, uh, you know, but the central banks can build parachutes, not airplanes, you know, and we need an airplane. And, uh, you know, now uh, uh, the markets are not self-stabilizing. Austerity and stagnation is destroying the solidarity. Uh, we cannot find a common policy. Uh, the ECB policy is necessary, but is not sufficient. And in this situation, you know, uh, we, 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 
we uh, the problem is not is not the crisis of the euro but is the response of the european country to the to, to to of the european government to the crisis of uh, of of the euro you know we have intergovernmental policy and no agreement among governments so uh, intergovernmental policy at least means that uh, you have some agreement among governments you know so i don't uh, i don't uh, uh, I, I think that we have uh, to take some decision that have been demonstrated impossible till now uh, starting from the problems of mutualization of debt and uh, let's say euro bonds or so on common development projects implemented in a big dimension a common policy also on problems like immigration that uh, build solidarity and uh, you know also a common policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the last event that is brexit and there is no field in which we have this and uh, i tell you in the situation which are now in which uh, the international speculation is just waiting to have some sheep that is sick in order to eat it uh, in this situation with uh, uh, an uncertainty about brexit not about brexit but, but about solution of the brexit problem that somebody think that can go on four years but can we think that in we can live four years of total uncertainty like we are now please is impossible. So I go back to what Sylvie told. Either we go uh, and we take some decision on uh, uh, changing European policy and we have not much time or we shall have a major crisis. Well, the last ob objection that somebody does is Europe always has grown through crisis. But uh, I think this is too complex, too much, too big to, uh, let's say, uh, like the empty chair, it, it was totally different. There was one single problem to tackle. Now, either we give, uh, as Sylvie told, to European citizens the message that we are building Europe or the game is over. So that was a, that was a very strong, uh, that was a very, very strong message. I think basically you all three uh, gave more or less uh, the same message of difficulty, but I think uh, Romano Prodi made it the most explicit uh, of what happens uh, if one doesn't overcome the, uh, the, 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 the political problems that you, all, you have all identified. So l let me go back to, to each of you with, the, with, one, uh, with one question. Uh, for you, uh, Joachim, um, you, uh, you just heard uh, the plea in a sense, or the warning uh, from uh, from Ramona Prodi, uh, either we move forward or uh, there is uh, there's really big danger uh, out there uh, with uh, with uh, with the with the euro. Uh, you have told us that um, I mean you have, you have put a lot of emphasis on the issues of, of sovereignty and also reminded us about the the German uh, constitution. Uh, how 
I mean, you, you mentioned the, 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 the German constitution article, but uh, certainly you, you, you said also that, the, the, let's say, the, the, the political impediment is on, is, on, is, on, is on both sides. How do you see uh, from a, uh, a German who lives in France, uh, but who have a long perspective on those matters, how do you see, nonetheless, from a, from a German perspective, um, the, uh, the, where we may be going forward? Uh, you think we are we are stuck where we are, and um, it's just an, an accident in, in waiting, uh, or do you see some capacity politically uh, to overcome uh, the uh, the great uh, impediments? It's di it's difficult to to answer as a German because I don't see, at least in the last years what I call the real German perspective. Sylvie is totally right to say, in reality, sovereignty today is a myth. You see this on internal security, look at terrorism, look at police cooperation, look at our external border control, etc., etc. And the same applies, finally, what I call to economic, financial, and fiscal policy. And behind for me is a simple thinking, I think Romano is right in this. We are speaking today what I call self-assertiveness of Europe or the survival in the longer run of Europe in a world which is globalized, which is in insecurity, etc. And therefore, what I need today to some extent is, let's call it a brainstorming by my bosses. I need a certain road map, which I would like to see some years ago even, around the year 2000 perhaps, or even afterwards, a, a certain road map to overcome these differences, to discuss openly together, and to try to build on again on common ground. For me, the question today is this lack of common ground, this lack of, let's call it, common understanding or of conspiration, if you want. Romano, you will remember one of your crucial moments as president of a commission when two heads of government, heads of state and government, were looking for your cooperation and for your, let's call it, trustful cooperation, Schröder and Chirac, but openly violating the regulations, the existing ones, instead of coming to see you in a confidential way, asking for advice, assistance, and help. There is, there is. I, I'm still looking how to get this switch, Romani, Romano, uh, in order to get again, let's say, a, a relation of confidence between Brussels and the nation state, and vice versa. Uh, if you tell to, f if a commission is today telling to France you should change your policies A, B, C, D, E, uh, uh, the French call this is an interference into internal affairs, please uh, abstain. The same applies to Berlin. The Italians, your successors, open rapidly other debates uh, which are not in the core in, in order to, to avoid a certain debate. How to get back 
to this, let's say, to this conspiracy, to the spirit of conspiration, if you want, in a positive way, of complicity, the French call it. Uh, how to come back to this? And there is, it's because when you look at the open questions, the debate is not as difficult as many think. I had a long discussion with Helmut Kohl some time ago about this. And our common idea was at the end, what we need to some extent is a sort of program of 10 points. Okay. Easy 10 points, sort of. Written in a way, Sylvie, that people understand it, when people discover, ah, they try to find a solution, and the solution is okay, more or less. It's a compromise at the end, but they are looking for a real solution. Where is the key to get this switch, if you want? Sylvie, uh, one, question, one question for you. Uh, you can also uh, take what, uh, you know, uh, what Joachim just, just said. But I, I, I have one question. Um, you, you made a very strong plea about sovereignty and uh, attacked, in a sense, uh, the notion of sovereignty today, uh, in today's world, as, 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 as a myth. Okay, that some countries and some of the bigger countries uh, still believe uh, that they may have, but which, uh, in in your in your view, they they've uh, they've lost uh, mainly. Now, as I was listening to you, uh, I was wondering, uh, even though I I, I I would basically share your view in general, uh, I was wondering whether it applies equally to all areas, and in particular, uh, whether it applied to, to, to the area that Joachim was, was talking about in, in his first intervention, which is about budgetary uh, sovereignty. Uh, that is the link with the national parliament. National budgets are voted by national parliament. And uh, how far can uh, Europe um, in the name of uh, the uh, euro area interests, uh, and not just the place of the euro area in the, in the global world, but looking at the different countries, how much uh, can we uh, violate this sacrosanct link between national parliaments and national budgets? Uh, what is really the role uh, that European institutions can have in, uh, in questioning that in, in, some, uh, in some manner. Could we, for once, think in a free way? For maybe because I'm French and the national parliament is not that strong, but why should we consider that the current organization of the world is forever? You can read, uh, there is a fantastic text from the fifth century written by someone called Nutilius Namatianus. He was one of the last prefects of Rome, and he was absolutely convinced. In Latin, you can go, it's deredito suo. He tells the story when he went back to France, because he was born in France. And because of the troubles created by the barbarians of the, this time, and this is a fantastic piece in which he does insist on the fact that Rome is there for centuries and centuries. I'm more modest. Our generation, in my opinion, is living in the type of time 
that they experienced at the end of the Roman Empire, that uh, some uh, cities in Italy experienced at the end of the, the, the Middle Age, etc. Why should we ask ourselves how to keep something and consider it sacrosanct without looking at the world as it is? I'm not saying this to provoke. I'm just saying I have a lot of respect for democracy, but we have not even tried to build something serious at the European level. When you have a budget based on national contributions, instead of own resources as the Treaty of Rome foresees, of course you put the emphasis on the national authorization of uh, the tax, uh, the, the revenues, etc. I'm not saying I want all the power at the, at the European level, but we call parliament something that is not considered a parliament. By the way, André, not even the paper you wrote with Jean Pisani, Guntram Wolf, and some others on the continental partnership. Please help us to build something at the European level that is respected. Nobody would say we will give a say to someone in Westminster, in the Bundestag, or elsewhere. And when it is about Europe, Immediately, you invent things in which someone could interfere with the legislation. So what we could do is simply to take seriously what we were supposed to do. So to have some accountability, there are lots of improvements to introduce. I'm not saying the parliament is perfect. We should look at the, at the voting system. We should look at the type of people, the profile we send to Brussels. We should look at the way we, we organize the vote. I'm in favor of some transnational candidates in order to have a real European perspective. If we do all this, and we do it with some sincere willingness that it works, and not with the type of schizophrenic attitude I've observed by the ministers of finance who pretend to make the banking union but make everything in the discussion not to have a banking union. On, on this, it's not feasible. We'll achieve nothing. So I have a lot of respect for the national parliament, but the question, as you ask it, is irrelevant. The question is not how I can defend the prerogatives of the world of yesterday. The question is how can I organize? And of course, Europe will not have to deal with all issues. It might be focused on some policies. The nations are not going to disappear, et cetera, et cetera. But please, let's try to look to be future-oriented and stop thinking that uh, les civilisations ne sont pas mortelles. But just one last word, because I wanted to say something. Romano, he said, if we don't do this and this, the euro will not survive. My deep feeling is that the risk is not that the euro is not going to survive, euro. but that even, no, but even the nation states are not going to survive. Because the way we don't deliver now is creating troubles everywhere. The lack of common migration policy is creating troubles where we try to welcome migrants. The lack of uh, jobs and growth is creating troubles in some countries. So the risk is not that we only lose the euro. The risk is that the nation states disappear more if they do nothing than if we try together and it will be painful and it will be difficult and step by step to find common solutions for problems that are already common problem. Remember Jean Monnet, when someone told him, mettez-vous à ma place, he said, non, non, je ne vais pas me mettre à votre place. Je vais me mettre à la place où personne ne se met. The lack of European perspective is what is really missing. So the problem is not to have the German perspective or the French perspective. 
who cares about the European interest for all the citizens of Europe? Romano, um, Sylvie has just spoken about the step-by-step uh, approach. Uh, you, sp you spoke about step-by-step -step, uh, in the early days, uh, and that those steps in your conversations with, uh, with, Chancellor, with Chancellor Kohl in, in the 90s, and those steps were, were, not, uh, were not taken uh, then. Uh, we had the crisis, and uh, the crisis uh, was, a, was a very deep crisis, and the, the, the crisis, we are not anymore in a crisis mode, uh, but clearly the, the crisis has, has left a, a lot of scars, uh, has left mountains of debts, uh, has left um, high uh, unemployment uh, in, uh, in some countries, uh, more division in a sense, less convergence than, uh, than we had in the past. Um, and uh, step by step um, may take time. I mean, the kind of things that Sylvie is talking about and that we, we, may, uh, we may agree and she takes a very long historical perspective, uh, I wonder uh, whether that very long historical perspective uh, it will be sufficient to deal with the euro problem. I mean, a next crisis of the euro area uh, would be quite uh, would be quite dramatic. Uh, so I, I, I would uh, I would submit that uh, uh, we can't we can't afford to have a repeat of what we had in 2010, 2012. What is it we need to do, in your view, uh, at the, at the political level? What kind of initiative needs to be taken now? Well, if there is no the, 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 the conscious of, of, of the danger of the situation in which we are, you cannot take any decision, you know. Uh, in the conversation, uh, it went back the concept of uh, nationality, of so on, so on, so on. The problem is that uh, today you cannot exercise your national level in the globalization this is the real uh, what people uh, don't understand you know because it's uh, i always when i talk with the students you know uh, now my job is to 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 make sermons you know i tell look uh, europe today is like uh, in the situation of the italian state in the renaissance you know venice rome uh, Milan General, they were leading, you know, I am not rhetorical, you know, they were leading in any field. Then we had the first globalization, the discovery of America, and no Italian state was able to build the new caravels, and Italy disappeared from the world map for four centuries. We are in the same situation. And, you know, the, the European states uh, uh, there is a question mark about Germany if they think to uh, to build the caravel big enough, you know. But I don't know. But uh, each I think that each European state is unable to do that, you know. And so, we shall, which are the new caravels? Google, Apple, eBay, uh, Alibaba—they are all Chinese or Americans. And now 
you will see that the division of the European government is so deep that we have a European government who refuse to receive taxation in order to maintain the difference from other European countries. No, it's, it's like a comic, you know. The Irish government says, I don't want 15 billion dollars because, you know, I do prefer to compete in taxation. If you do that, there is nothing to do. We have to be clear, you know, because uh, we are not united in front of the danger of disappear. And this is why I posit in a constructive way the German case, you know, because uh, clearly Germany is leading because of his virtues, not because of his wise, but uh, must take the responsibility of leading a collective, not, not only one, one country, you know. This is the real, the real problem, you know. And uh, as United States did with the Marshall Plan, as it was decided to forgive the German debt because it was a wise decision. We are, we are in a moment in which we need one of these political decisions. Otherwise, there is no way out. You, you can't, you know, when, I repeat, when a, a European state refuses to, to receive taxation because they want to have freedom of movement, <laughs> it's, you know, the game is over. And we have to, to go deep into, into the problem. Otherwise, we shall, you know, of course, when I say that it's urgent, I say that it's urgent because day by day we are eroded, you know, and people who understand that, uh, you know, nobody is able to give a, a compass to our politics, they vote for the anti-governmental groups, you know. And it's quite interesting because uh, if you look uh, the historical change, you know, they are more and more not left-wing, not right-wing. They are simply against, you know. And when they abandon a theoretical route, they make a jump like Mrs. Le Pen, when she killed her father, she was jumping in votes. Five stars are not anymore left-wing, but they are right-wing. They are just telling to people, look, this guy, they don't solve our problems, you know. This, I, I, I seem to be radical, that I have never been radical in my life. But when you arrive to, 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 to the borders, you know, you have, you have to say yes or no as Helmut Kohl was teaching me to, to, to the end of the problem. You, you are right to yes or no. Now we arrive to a yes or no situation. Please don't try to find, uh, uh, let's say, other uh, way out. Romano, Romano, I follow your dream. I would like to follow your dream, and Sylvie's too. But I live in reality. And I can't, I hope that the next generation of politicians will perhaps uh, as forthcoming as Romano or as Sylvie want us to be. But I have to be in politics, I have to live in perception. And the perception is a different one. And the perception is, I would be glad to reach a step-by-step -step approach. Therefore, I've written a paper which is at the disposal of Bruegel which exists somewhere where I've put some, some ideas 
to settle it at least for the next 10 years, not the perfect end solution. But, Sylvie, I need, I regret, national parliaments. I need them. I have to reintegrate them into European affairs. They are out of it. It was, in my eyes, one of our huge mistakes in the 90s, even earlier, to think that the European Parliament would get what I call the last resort and the last legitimacy in Europe. I regret we have not reached it. The same dream applies to the European Commission. In my understanding, always a political body. But go to Paris, please, and ask the majority in, in French Parliament or in French politics, they see the Commission as a technical body, full stop. No, no more, but not as a future European government. If only it was. And, and, therefore, and therefore, I need what I call an intermediate step, if you want, in order to reach what you want and what you want, what you feel necessary, in order to show that we are ready to assure the survival of the Euro and of Europe. Yes. Let, let, me, uh, let me open the floor. Uh, for for questions, there will be obviously opportunity for for Sylvie, for Romano, for Joachim to to come back in this uh, in this discussion, which has become a very political uh, discussion and with in a sense different views about the reality of the world, right? I mean, different perceptions of the reality of the world, and uh, one can put forward one uh, one element, uh, which is this global uh, global world. Uh, which is no doubt uh, present and that nobody can uh, can ignore, and uh, one can equally put uh, forward the uh, the fact that there is no real European public opinion, uh, no Euro area public opinion, and uh, that politics uh, remains uh, largely at the at the national level. And how Europe uh, that is confronted with those two challenges, the challenges of globalization, uh, which is a huge challenge uh, for each of our countries and for all of us uh, together, and at the same time the question of legitimacy and uh, political, uh, political uh, discourses at the national level that does need to be clearly taken, uh, taken into account. How do we reconcile those two? Uh, I think it's not just a general political discussion that we're having, but they have immediate impact on, on the euro, on the question of the euro, which is the most political of the projects uh, that uh, have gone. And perhaps, if I can just add something at this stage, uh, when I look back you know, for, for, for myself, uh, the, all the, the, the thoughts I had, all the discussions that I had, uh, I think that um, we underestimated the uh, break that the euro represents in the process of economic integration. This view that the euro uh, was just one more step in the integration, you know, that we have one market and then one money, it's like a, a natural continuation. I think there we underestimated that we were leaving the market domain to enter into a much more political one. And uh, that obviously uh, has come back to, to haunt us because, as I said in my introduction, the kind of questions and the kind of discussion that we're having now, they're not new, uh, but they've taken much more 
much more immediacy today and much more relevance because then it was about a project that was about to start. Now it is a, about a project uh, that has done a lot of good uh, but that is at the same time very fragile and that has uh, gone through some uh, very, very difficult times. So they're not just theoretical questions, no. they're questions about the, uh, the sustainability of the system. But let, let me, uh, let me uh, ask some, uh, let some of the, the members of the floor, I have great difficulty of seeing uh, faces from here. Uh, I see somebody there at the back, uh, if you could stand up and ask the question there. I see uh, Otmar, I see a question yes. here. <coughs> I, I see questions, yes. Good evening, I'm a journalist, uh, Lorenzo Consoli from Musca News. Speak loud. Uh, I would like to ask, Can I'm you a journalist. say exactly who you are? Yes, I'm a journalist, Lorenzo Consoli from Musca News. I would like to ask uh, two questions, uh, one to uh, President Prodi and, and one to uh, Mr. Bitalik. Uh, my question on pre to President Prodi is, you, uh, you are saying very clearly that we are in a great danger, great danger for the European Union. But I mean, seen, having seen the debate that there is also in Italy about the fact that the European Union is today the problem for the public opinion in many, many countries, do you think that if there is not such a jump in political decision towards solving the problems, and uh, I, I don't see what the jump could be, probably the five president's reports, but it's not going anywhere uh, uh, as much as I see. Uh, do you think that it would be better to sacrifice the European uh, Monetary Union in order to save the European Union? It's a question that is starting to be asked in, in many quarters in Europe. Second question to Mr. Bitterly. If, if I can, it's an no, historic question. It's just, very, it's just very important. Question. Just one question. Yeah. Just one question. But it's, it's something completely different about coal. No. About the, coal. The, the answer, if I the can. Answer, the answer is no. Okay. Uh, Otmar Ising. Just as a first side remark, you said, Andre, we didn't understand what introduction of the euro means. I think this non-understanding does not apply to all people in this room. <laughs> um, I'm a bit surprised. I share all your concerns about the situation. And everybody who has a European sense must be concerned. But what strikes me a bit, and I'm provocative, you seem to agree there seems to be a consensus on this panel that on the one hand, there is what Joachim Bitterlich called a gap. On the other hand, there's no way to ask people in a referendum to change that. If this is true, what I have heard here is, and I'm blunt, provocative, is inventing ways to circumvent in an undemocratic way this resistance of people in referendum. Uh, and if I hear the word conspiration, my reading of the Brexit and the emergence of extremist parties is exactly because people feel that there is something happening which they don't understand. And I fully agree with Sylvie that European issues have to be made simple that people understand why we need Europe. But 
Is anybody ready to ask a simple question to people if they are ready to be blunt, to spend money for European issues without having a vote? My thinking, I have respect for constitutions. And constitutions still mean that politicians are responsible to their voters. After some years, they have to stand the vote. And uh, on this issue, uh, I think to overcome national constitutions through the back door is for me extremely dangerous because this will be foot for extremist parties and for exit options uh, in quite a number of European Monetary Union member countries. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Otmar, for, for making this uh, this very very uh, important uh, very important point, and we will see what the the panelists uh, answer. Let me still take a couple of questions in this round. Yes, the gentleman here in front. Hi, I'm Stefan Bujner, the CEO of Euronext. Um, I belong, like many of us, to a generation whose brothers go to Erasmus. They were not killed at the war, and uh, and the questions you guys are addressing is about how you address how you talk to to that generation. Um, you are telling us that the status quo is a dead end, and you are telling us that the breakthrough, the systemic breakthrough, is not achievable, is not reachable, uh, because of all sorts of constitutional, political, legitimate reasons. And you tell us that one option is uh, to change the paradigm and dream and have a vision, etc., so that the higher constraints can be break, broken. Uh, my question is more simple than that. Uh, as experts, as practitioners, uh, what each, it's a question to each of you in the panel. What, would you, what decision do you think is feasible within the coming months, which is above the current status quo, but below the breakthrough, uh, and that can be delivered to show that action is taken? Is it purely behavioral? Is it policy mix? What can we do more than uh, what we have today unless that we are dreaming to rebuild uh, in a tangible manner trust with the voters and to move away from the dead end and the frustrating situation where we feel we are? Thank you. So uh, a, very, a very concrete uh, question and I will ask uh, everyone on, on, on the panel to give, uh, to give an answer to, to your question. So what kind of concrete a uh, step can be taken short of the grand vision, but uh, that is moving, uh, moving in the in the right direction in, in their view. The person at, at the yeah. back there again, I, c yeah, I can't see. My, so my name is Mohammed Rajai. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mohammed Rajai Barakat. I wanted to ask Mr. Brody. Uh, it's uh, the same pr question as uh, the president one. Can you speak louder? Yeah, uh, I want to ask Mr. Brody. Let's imagine that you have the full power in the European Union. You are the president of the Commission, the president of the Council, the president of the European Parliament. What are the urgent measures that you are going to take so as to save Eurozone and the European Union? And don't you think that the problem in the European Union are the voters, people who vote? We have we have uh, the uh, uh, refugee crisis, which I can consider as not important crisis. Everybody here is considering it as an important crisis, and people are voting for the extreme right. 
don't you think that voters on the national at the national level are the, uh, the, the the problem in the European Union? Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me just take the last question for this round. Uh, the person over there. here in Brussels, Joachim Bitterlich, I think the, the question about the national parliaments, including them in the decision-making process, because I think it's a decision-making crisis. The political will is perhaps even good, union became more integrated due to the crisis, but we have a decision-making pro problem. And Joachim Bitterlich, I think that is a crucial question you put just on the table, the integration of national parliaments in that process. And Sylvie, perhaps you could also comment on this. Thank you. So l let me go in reverse order from before. Start with the Romano Prodi. You, you take the questions that you, oh, you look, wish to, to uh, answer. There is a, a preliminary question that is uh, sacrifice the euro in order to save the European Union. I think that they fall together. Look, if the euro falls, the European Union becomes only a weak trade area. There is no other possibility to, 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 to reverse the, the way I, because the euro, as I told before, was conceived as some sort of, of no return about the European uh, challenge. If you give up to the euro, uh, you give up to Europe. This is especially after the Brexit, you know, because uh, out of the euro, there is a very small minority of uh, European people and the European GDP. So it's, uh, I, I think that clearly that. What should I do? Uh, the second question, mm, uh, look, uh, I repeat, I am convinced that uh, you can go on with this uh, progressive sickness, you know, and you need some sort of uh, major decision. You have to take two decisions. One that goes to the heart of people, migration, and the other one, uh, a, a economic decision that makes impossible to the intellectual speculation to kill one country to put the countries one against the others. You know, you need uh, from one side, uh, uh, you know, a decision about migration and the other side, a decision about uh, uh, some sort of fiscal solidarity. I know that is, is I am clear, I am not, I am not, uh, I don't live in the moon, you know, I know how difficult is it. I simply tell you, that if we don't go in this direction, we go back. It's, uh, we cannot go on, I repeat, especially after Brexit, in this situation or no, having no, no, no direction. And, you know, at, when I consider Europe, Europe is still, is still a great power in the world. Huh? We are, well, talking with the uh, UK included, we were by far the biggest industrial producer in the world, the biggest exporter in the world, you know, and so if we, 
don't keep this strength, you know, uh, after the, the out of, of UK is a little uh, less strong, but anyway, is a leading position in the world in any way. If we give the message that we don't use that, I think that European project will will be over. You know, we shall keep uh, uh, a very strong trade area. We shall, you know, but anyway, it's difficult to think to something that take decision when one percent of GDP, European GDP, that is the European budget, is considered to be too much. Look at. It's completely nonsense, you know, it's, and we live in this situation, you know. It's, uh, uh, what can you do if you don't completely change your, uh, your perspective? This is why I repeat migration from one side, an economic decision in which you show strength and solidarity from the other side. Otherwise, uh, the game is... I, I, as I told before, the game is over. You know, we can't play uh, to the lowest level for a long uh, period of time again. First of all, to Herrn Hissing, uh, nobody wants to destroy the constitutional order through the back door. I'm not the one who said on this panel, we will never consult the people, whatever. And I respect very much, above all, what the German institutions are built after uh, what happened in the Second World War and that, de who deliv that delivered so much stability for Germany. The question is another one. With all the respect we can have for the national level, we should discuss in a sincere way what can be achieved at the national level, what cannot be achieved at the national level anymore. And then maybe put pull sovereignty when we are really ready to do it. But if we do it, then we should be coherent. I take the example of the trade agreement with Canada. I remember the convention. We made a huge battle, Romano, Pascal Lamy, etc., to give the European Union the legal personality. The idea was to use the strength of the European Union to discuss with partners like Canada, China, whomever, at Augenhöhe, as you say in German, looking at them, looking at them in the eyes. We have adopted the Lisbon Treaty. The Lisbon Treaty was ratified by the national parliaments, sometimes by referendum. In this treaty, you have trade as an exclusive competence of the European Union. It is a common strength. What is the Commission doing now? It decided it's a mixed agreement. And then what happens? We weaken ourselves. I have nothing against the national parliaments or the regional parliaments. We are in Belgium, there are so many regional parliaments, have to be careful, uh, deciding on this. But it is not appropriate. And if you want to respect the national constitution, we should also respect the treaties we have signed, ratified, according to the national constitutions. Okay. And here, I don't have the answer for the people who are completely not coherent. You cannot adopt a treaty and then decide to violate, but the only sacrosanct thing is to respect the rights of the people violating the rules. I love Germany when they ask us to respect the rules, so let's always respect the rules. By the way, 
let's respect also Article 50 of the treaty. Because you say we don't want backdoor policies. Right now, it's not the European Commission, it's not the European Council, it's not the European Parliament that is delaying the decision, drawing the consequences from a referendum. It is a national government that puts itself in the mess and wants to keep us waiting because they don't have the guts to do what their people ask them to do. So I'm not asking for something special, I'm just asking for the UK to respect Article 50 of the treaty. There is one procedure, this procedure states clearly that they are the rights of the other member states to defend, and at the end there will be the consent of the European Parliament. Please help us, I'm not defending the rights of the European Parliament, I'm defending your rights. And nobody says anything on this. And everybody accepts that we are supposed to designate a new British commissioner without anyone in the UK triggering Article 50. This has to do with democracy. No, I'm sorry. We are at the heart of the question that was asked. Sylvie, Sylvie can, can, can I ask you, can you ask you a question? Um, I, mean, I was answering the questions of the public. This is democracy no, I, too. I, I, what, what I want you to, 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 to answer is the question of Otmar. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, you, do, you, you, you took the example, a very good example about the Lisbon Treaty and the decision that was taken in the Lisbon Treaty uh, to transfer competence for trade and investment uh, from the national level to the European level. And you say now, we have, it, it was decided, let's implement it. No, but Otmar could, uh, could respond to you uh, about fiscal issues. Uh, there was uh, a treaty in Maastricht uh, that has not been affected by the treaties afterwards that essentially created a monetary union where we have transferred sovereignty from the national level to the European level as far as money is concerned, but not about other issues apart from the excessive deficit procedure. Okay? And now uh, that we are talking, now that we have had the crisis to come back to the Euro issues, it's clear that a number of people, including on, on this panel, uh, are asking to go further. But this is not based on a treaty that already exists. No, it's pushing the treaty. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different matter. You cannot sort of hide behind the treaty as it exists to say, let's implement it. Okay. What you Otmar know, is asking you uh, is, can, 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 can we go further we in this fiscal union? If we could implement it in France, the answer to the question would be more simple. To be honest, one of the problems we face right now is the lack of mutual trust. And there is lack of mutual trust because Germany gave the euro, the French wanted the euro. Uh, Germany gave the DMARC and the counterpart enshrined in the treaties and in the Stability and Growth Pact was the commitment by the others to respect the budgetary discipline. So if we don't respect the budgetary discipline, or if we don't, you can dislike it, but if you dislike it, then you have to make proposals. What I don't like in the French position is when people make as if they would agree, and actually they always try to escape. This is not adult, okay? So, but don't tell me, I was one of the rapporteurs of the six pack, I was in charge of the text on the sanctions, I was criticized in France all the time, that I would not be for the respect of the rules. So if we respect the rules in a, of course, intelligent way, uh, with some comprehension for the, the 
how do you say, terremoto in uh, earthquake in, in Italy or with some other troubles due to refugees, etc. I am sure we can discuss with each other, but don't make as if we could make the next step without being uh, coherent with the current ones. And I have the feeling that Ottmar is really at ease with what I've said. And when I'm in Germany, I'm never criticized because I try to be credible and to maintain this position. To answer Mr. Bujna very quickly, I would if I was, but nobody is so powerful, it's too easy to say who is, has all the powers. Fortunately, we live with Montesquieu, not every one person has all the powers. So we could try to take an initiative on tax. Why? Because of the Apple decision of the Commission, which is a huge decision, and I want to pay tribute to Margaret Destager for her courage. Second thing, if I'm sharing the intergroup fighting against poverty in the European Parliament. One of the main problems we have in Europe right now is that people feel it is not fair. They have the feeling the system is not fair. You have the big ones escape, escaping the taxes, avoiding uh, their duties and the others. So we should take a common initiative based on the fact that it cannot work if some member states have the right to take the money coming from the others. It is even meanless, it, it's, it's, it makes no sense to have countries that want to be very tough on budgetary discipline and at the same time, they attract companies based in the south of Europe to have them in their territories. So I would put fairness at the center of each and every initiative. And I would so do something, I would smile, I would be positive, I would say, okay, we have made so many mistakes in Europe, but if we don't believe a little that mis-mistakes can be corrected, we will go nowhere. So please, smile. Otmar Ising is right. For me, there's no question, let's say, to override or to overcome constitutions through the back door. For me, the question today is a different one, a totally different one. I need another spirit, and that I meant by conspiration. The French call it complicité, which has a totally different meaning in German, by the way. I need a common spirit, but I'm, to a certain extent, in Europe, I'm in a mess. In a situation where our credibility, we have lost enormously credibility, perhaps by the own fault of politicians, yes. But there are areas where we can act. Example, internal and external security. There we can act if we want to do it. When I look at reality in this area, it's a scandal no one is speaking about. It's a real scandal. I could tell you a whole evening about this. There are other areas where we should stop, let's say, this ideological debate whether it has to be communitarian or it has to be intergovernmental. We have to abandon sovereignty. No, we have to pool sovereignties if, if it's needed, yes. And therefore, we have to reflect about the conception. And my problem is, when I look at the conception for these areas, we have not been really reflecting about this deeply in order to look for a consensus in Europe in the last years. And we need this debate. Therefore, I've made a series of proposals. And I've 
for at least for the next 10 years, I don't see certain let's say, steps of integration in reality terms. For example, one of my ideas I've taken from the German Sachverständigenrat. We need a certain structural mechanism uh, at the European level, yes. We need a common body to follow the permanently the orientation of economic and financial policies. What's the role of a commission in this area? Question mark. Part of it, yes, but who should direct this? And we have to integrate, in my, uh, in my view, the national parliaments into the European debate. We need, this is my proposal for some years now, we need a sort of European Senate for a certain number of questions to look at it. And uh, we should stop this debate about debates about ideological questions. What we look and what the citizen is looking for is efficiency and seriousness. And there's my problem. We have, um, we have a little bit of, of time, uh, not a huge amount, but about 10, uh, 10 15 minutes, so we could have a, a, a second, uh, second round of questions. Yes, please. Simone Tagliapietra from uh, Brugge. Uh, Professor Prodi, I would have a question for you. Uh, I think that uh, many in this room or discotheque, as Silvia said at the beginning, uh, agree with your analysis that even you know, in this phase, either we go forward, we move forward, or simply the game will be over for Europe. But uh, how would you see Europe going in this direction? Would you see a two-speed uh, Europe coming up as the ideal model to go ahead? Or would you have another model in mind? So who, who should go ahead? Thank you, uh, Simone. Yes. I see a question over there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Dominique Deguerre from Moilis and Company. Since uh, the United Kingdom never intended to be part of the Euro area, and coming back to the topic of the panel, I would like to ask the panelists if they consider that Brexit is or can be good news for the future of the Euro area. Thank you. Thank you. There was a, a question right here. Thank you. Um, one of my favorite cartoons from the Brexit is... Uh, Can you introduce yourself? Of course. My name is Anastasios Papandreou. I'm from... I work for the European Commission on Energy. Anyway, I was going to say about a cartoon. It was David Cameron receiving a slap by Sir Winston Churchill for failing to understand the European spirit and for transferring the huge sense of responsibility to people who were not in position to judge on it. So when we're talking about back, uh, back doors and so forth on constitutions, sometimes the people are not able, not, I mean, they're not able, they're not in position to have the big picture in mind because it was not cultivated to them. And my other point that I wanna make is that if you look on the other side of the Atlantic, there's a US Federation that has a Senate and in the Senate, every state is represented by two people. That's equality. It's, no, it's not a working party that every side comes in and they immediately think, what's in for me? They go in there and they think about what's in for the US because they're all equal in it. So I'd like your comments on this. Thank you. Thank you. 
Is there last uh, last questions? That's the last question over there. Who's here? Okay. Yes. Okay. Then there's a, okay. Natasha. Uh, Natasha will be last. Is it Natasha? Wait, is it she? Sorry. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm uh, Jean-Michel Six from uh, Standard and Poor's. I would like to have the panelists' opinion about an institution which I think, in fact, if you look in historical perspective, has actually kept the euro area together since 2008, and that's the ECB. Uh, I'm surprised, actually, that you haven't talked about monetary policies at all during this uh, discussion, and especially about one institution that's been able. You can criticize such and such decisions, surely, but generally speaking, it strikes me that this is the one institution that's been able to decide quickly, swiftly, and effectively when crises were occurring instead of spending weekends and weekends in Brussels trying to uh, get to a general statement at the end of the day. So my question very precisely is, at this point, we've really used and overused the ECB as a tool and a way to keep the Eurozone together. Do you think this tool is still effective or do you think we're really even there running out of uh, power and efficiency? Thank you. Thank you, Jean-Michel. So the last question is indeed for Natasha. Yes. I, Thank you. I can't see you, but... Uh, Sorry, standing up. Uh, Natasha Valla from the European Investment Bank. Uh, I would also like to go in the same direction as Jean-Philippe and trying to end on a positive note. Uh, I now look at an institution uh, which has been around since the 50s, which is a EU institution, and where I see you know, every year 80 billion financing that go to European projects. They build bridges, they look at innovation, they finance SMEs, they do a lot of things uh, you know, in different, with different successes. But if you had to list, each of us had to list the five positive achievements that we have uh, reached in Europe through the European institution building that started with the Rome Treaty, which one would they be? Uh, and would you see them still today being alive and able to bring us forward in this step forward that uh, Mr. Prodi was calling for? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Natasha. So let me now go back to the, uh, to the panelists for about a couple of minutes uh, each as as a closing uh, closing remarks, Joachim. First Brexit, Sylvia. I regret we have not a debate about Brexit here, but uh, I think we will go for some time through a certain number of surprises. It will be a time of insecurity, if you want it or not. The text is formulated as it is. I regret. I had a long debate with the authors of the text. And I sh do not share their view about the text. Uh, it's a risky text. And we will see, because the Brits want to have something else that many P Europeans think. But it's not our debate here. It's true. We had in the last years one institution which was really working the ECB. 
The EIB is working too, but no one knows it. EIB has totally forgotten what I call marketing, if you want. By the way, it's one of the really weak points of the Europeans is marketing. It's another, it's, it's another story. But uh, please, let's do what we can. And I've still in mind this view of a Chinese blogger who last year consulted his followers about what the Chinese would think about Europe. And during a night, about one half a million or two million Chinese were answering and 70% of those said clearly, the European Union is in the world the biggest project for peace, democracy, and prosperity. Let's have a bit more self-confidence in us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm, I speak under the control of the people who were in charge at that time. I'm not sure that the idea was at the beginning that the UK would never join the Euro. I remember the time where Tony Blair was promising a referendum. And if you read the Protocol 14 on, of the Eurogroup, it says clearly that uh, all these arrangements are pending the Euro becoming the currency of all member states of the Union. It is in one of the protocol being part of the treaties. So maybe it was not politically, but let's come back to a very important point. If you look at Article 3.4 of the treaty, it talks about a single currency. It's the euro was supposed to be the currency of the European Union. This is not a minor point, and that's the reason why I'm sorry. If I want to talk about Brexit in the framework of Europe, I will talk about Brexit. Because I'm fed up with the way in Brussels people refuse to talk. They refuse to talk before the referendum. They refuse to talk after the referendum. We are all in a state of denial. It's a matter of common concern. You can always read a treaty saying, well, it says only that one country can trigger, but we are all in the same boat, and it is in mutual interest that we can find a common ground and find a good solution for everyone. So you cannot have a unilateralist lecture of the treaty on one hand and then be part of the system. We should really insist we are all in the same boat, we need a good solution. And that's the reason why we also have the responsibility in the Eurozone to define what we want. I'm always surprised that people try to solve the question of Brexit without saying what they want themselves. I would like the French government to say more clearly how it sees the future of France in the European Union. Not against anyone, not just because of Brexit, but nobody knows. And in Germany, it's more or less the same. It's Aussetzen von Entscheidungen. It's one decision after the other, and sometimes we, we, we just pull. So let's try to ask ourselves. Do we still believe, and uh, I, I, I am one of your uh, pupils, so I really agree with you that do we still believe it is a political project? We have to make sure that we correct the flows because if we don't, it will not be a peace project, but more a matter of uh, divergence and dispute. Do we really believe it was something with a political goal, even if the instrument was uh, more uh, technical, economical, and you're perfectly right. I was yesterday in the ECB to speak to the staff. Maybe the reason why we have not mentioned the ECB is that, as you said yourself, we have asked a lot at the ECB. They have taken courageous decisions in the framework of their mandate, but with a clever interpretation of their mandate. Now the ball is at the side of the governments. And the model of the ECB was the Bundesbank and the uh, independence, but 
there was a German government when the, the Bundesbank was the central bank of Germany. And we are still uh, waiting for an executive body or whatever you call it and how you design it. But we need now a political impetus. So the question of the Senate or not is, does not seem to me the, the most uh, urgent one. I'm sure that in the next year, the most important thing is to make the system work with all the tools we have, with another quality of dialogue of the na between the national and the European level. But you know what I say to the French members of the national parliament when they say we want to be involved? So stop vote budgets that don't respect the treaties. I mean, if you really want to be involved, respect the rules. If you begin with what you are supposed to do, which is to control your own government, to make the scrutiny of the decisions, and to adopt budgets that respect the commitments France has taken uh, uh, Europe-wide. When we have achieved all this, and we have not talked, in my opinion, enough today on competitiveness, digital economy, real economy. I mean, we, we need much more uh, initiatives for investment, as Natasha said. There was the Juncker plan who marked uh, a big shift in the thinking here in Brussels, but it is, in my opinion, not sufficient. We need much more investments. The interest rates are low. We might use this opportunity to, uh, to try also to tackle climate change, to be less dependent from uh, kingdoms that are producing oils and also terrorists. We could do a lot to motivate our population with some goals. If we go to the south of Europe and we say, well, let's try to have at least as many solar plants in Sicily than in Baden-Württemberg, I think the people could understand. Romano. You're the last speaker. Oh, uh, there is nothing to add to this last intervention. I think that we need to have action. And I repeat, the direction is from one side migration, because it's moving all Europe. But the other side is growth. If we go on with austerity, Europe is over. It's so clear that People say, look, more unemployed, my future is at risk, uh, uh, you don't tackle globalization. And, you know, so we are in front of electoral year in which decisions are difficult, in which big changes are difficult. And so we have to take, and to answer to the question, what to do. It's uh, now. I do think, honestly, that everything is in the hands of Germany. I, 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 with the evolution that Europe had in the last years, we depend upon it. It's not by chance that Mrs. Merkel, after the trilateral meeting uh, in the Italian island, she went going country by country, and she has taken the role of uh, of uh, a European ruler. But, you know, uh, so uh, it's clear that the situation is so difficult because we need this. We have only one clear power in the last years, uh, that is Germany, and we have an electoral year in which it's difficult that this power can be exercised. But, uh, uh, this is what we need, you know. I simply, I'm trying to be intellectually honest to say, look, 
in this situation, the project is in danger because when you have not a reference power, when the real power has difficulty to exercise this power in the name of all the community of uh, member states. So it's clear, you know, I'm not only, is not to be pessimist, but to be very rational looking at the future. So uh, this is why I think that uh, uh, the next step can be done only by Germany. Don't count on European Central Bank because he did fantastic, you know, but as I told before, is a parachute, not not an airplane. And so things are in the hands of the governments. And the only government that they can, with authority, play a coordination effort is Germany. This is the reality of this moment, you like or not, you know. And so I do think that uh, in the next steps, in the next period, at least, to preserve Europe waiting for, let's say, a new evolution. It uh, needs to have a German policy taking account of the general interests uh, and making a mediation among the general interests of the different states. Thank you. So the, the title of this, of this session was The Future of the Euro Area in Historical Perspective. Um, I think maybe we could have uh, partly replaced or added uh, the word political uh, into this. I mean, this has been very much a, a, po a political uh, discussion, uh, essentially. And um, I think that the discussion is mixed, and I think there was, there was nothing wrong with that. Um, it has mixed not just a discussion on the year area. We've been talking about migration. Uh, we have been talking about many, many other dimensions of the uh, of the European project, including of the of the European uh, political project, because I think, as, as Romano Prodi uh, has uh, said eloquently, uh, the, the 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 future of the EU and the, and the future of the of the Euro area are are the same. They are, they are closely uh, closely uh, intertwined, uh, where one falls, the the other one uh, does uh, does as well. Uh, it's clear that um, it's it, it's a tough problem. Uh, and we can keep smiling, uh, as, uh, as Sylvie has asked us to uh, to do, and we can be uh, we can be positive. Uh, but I think, like with the, with Brexit, uh, we cannot minimize uh, the, the 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 problem. Uh, I think it would be, in in my view at least, it it would be a, a mistake um, to 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 consider that because we are in a calmer and. Luckily so, we're in a much calmer period now as far as the euro is concerned compared to what we went through from 2010 to, to 2012, 2013. Uh, we, we, should not be, uh, we should not be concerned. I'm, I'm, I regret, and I think several people have, have mentioned it, that the five president report uh, is not receiving much uh, uh, attention, much political capital, nobody, I've not heard really any uh, government wanting to, 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 to put, yes, to put real political capital behind it. Uh, as far as I understand it, uh, the, uh, the central bank, the ECB, uh, which was mentioned as, as having played such an, an important role uh, throughout the crisis and still today, uh, the real 
sort of instrument that we have in the euro area, the, the, the ECB is very keen uh, that the five president's report uh, be taken seriously and that concrete steps, as was asked by, by somebody, uh, be taken in, uh, in, in, the, in the foreseeable uh, future. So I think that, that, I think that there, there is clearly a, uh, a gap uh, between, I think, what was perceived in, by, by the panelists as the uh, the challenge, the political challenge uh, that needs to be uh, to be tackled, and yet uh, the fact that well, at the moment uh, the euro is not on the forefront of the of the news. There are other issues, and therefore uh, no political capital should 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 be spent on it. And yet we know uh, that even with a smile and with optimism, uh, we know that it remains uh, a fragile, a necessary but a fragile uh, project. So let's see where, where we are in, in a year from now uh, when we meet again and, and, uh, and check what kind of progress uh, has been made uh, or not uh, on this front. Let me thank all the, uh, the three panelists. Uh, I think it was really a, a, great, uh, a, great, uh, a great discussion. I think we, we covered I think all the issues that uh, one should have covered. Uh, let me thank all the participants from the, from the floor and uh, let me take this, uh, this session to a close. Thank you very much. Thank you.